Hello everyone, Simon here. Um, just a couple of points before we get to the main introduction. Um, as you'll hear, the first segment is on the controversial Roe versus Wade discussion that's been happening in America this week. Um, as I say, it's controversial uh, and it's about uh, abortion. And for that reason, you may or may not want to listen to that segment. Um, but if you do, I hope you enjoy it. Um, secondly, uh, if you're a philosopher and are listening to this and enjoying it and want to take part, then please do get in touch. Uh, I'd love to have you on the show. So without further ado, here's the main introduction. This is Philosophy Takes on the News. Hello, welcome to another Philosophy Takes on the News. I'm Simon Kirchin, a philosopher based at the University of Kent. We're recording on the morning of Thursday, the 5th of May. This is the week that saw Russia's invasion of Ukraine continue, with fresh bombardments coming from Russia. The historic Roe versus Wade decision in the US is reportedly facing renewed pressure from the Supreme Court. And today in the UK, many voters head for the polling booth to elect in numerous local mayoral and assembly elections. This week, we'll be thinking about that Roe versus Wade decision, electoral reform and living with COVID. We'll also see what else we get onto, as always. In fact, every week it's difficult to write these introductions as there's so much news to digest and think about, so much uh, confusion and noise. Talking of confusion and noise, time to meet this week's guests. Joining me this week, uh, we have Fiona McPherson, who's Professor at the University of Glasgow. Hi, Fiona. Hi, Simon. Nice to be here again. Uh, we've got Gerald Lang, who's Associate Professor at the University of Leeds. Hi, Gerald. Hi, Simon. Hi, everyone. And we've got a new voice joining us this week, Piers Ben, who currently teaches ethics at Fordham University London Centre and has recently taught at Roehampton. Hi, Piers. Hello, Simon. Thanks for the invitation. Good to be here. Uh, good to have you uh, with us and good to have all, th all three of you here. OK, so let's get to our first um, discussion. As I just mentioned, the historic Roe versus Wade judgment relating to abortion in the USA looks like it could be overturned this year. There was a leak from the US Supreme Court this week about a vote that's taken place on the court, a vote to strike down the Roe versus Wade ruling, and the leak looks like it's genuine. This raises many issues for us to talk about. Um, Piers, do you want to set the scene for us, both about the ethical issues with abortion itself and the politics of the situation? Yes, well, as I understand it, the news item is that the Supreme Court is planning to change the constitutional status of abortion throughout America. Uh, since 1973, every American woman's had a constitutional right to abortion, whatever state she lived in, in spite of the very different views prevalent in different states about the ethics of abortion. But a draft, but the, the leaked draft suggests that the Supreme Court wants to uh, reverse that, in other words, reverse the Roe versus Wade decision of 1973, thereby leaving it up to each individual state to decide its own laws. Obviously, this has made many people alarmed because they see that as a retrograde step, the undoing of nearly 50 years of advances in the respect for women's rights. And it's been viewed with great alarm, partly because of the uh, no doubt catastrophic effects this would have on millions of women, especially the poor. 
Now, um, there are several strands to this issue. One is obviously the ethics of abortion itself, which we may want to discuss in more detail. I mean, just very briefly on that, anybody, any philosopher who's taught undergraduate ethics courses will be aware of the main strands in that debate. Uh, The literature is added to daily and it's extremely complicated. Um, The basic sort of case against abortion really comes down to the idea that a human fetus is a human being with um, the same set of rights and interests as any born human being, and that therefore abortion, being deliberate killing, is the deliberate killing of an innocent human being, uh, a person. And those who believe that will sometimes, in fact, usually go on to say that just as infanticide and any other sorts of killing are rightly against the law, so should abortion. And the fact that people will suffer as a result of that law being enacted, it cannot count as a decisive reason against having those laws. Now, of course, that raises very complicated questions in ethical theory and indeed in metaphysics. Uh, We can discuss when life begins, we can discuss when a fetus becomes a person, what a person is, and so on. But usually those who defend the pro-life position, if they're philosophical, will take a sort of Aristotelian natural potential view and say that a human fetus or embryo is not uh, a person in the way that we are, that's in the the psychological sense that we are, it's not yet aware of itself, but it is a person with potential, not a potential person, and therefore is all its rights, has a set of rights to be respected. Now, the most powerful argument, in my view, against that view, is one that concentrates on the unique relationship that that the fetus stands into the pregnant woman's body. So um, imagine this scenario. Imagine that women could Uh, procure abortions for themselves just by exercising a special muscle, exerting a womb muscle that would expel a fetus whenever they chose to. People might say, well, that's morally wrong, at least on many occasions, but I think they'd be less willing to say that a woman should be arrested for doing that because she's, after all, doing something with and to her own body. She's deciding that a fetus shall not uh, or should not be able to continue to live off her. The the complexity with abortion is, of course, that a woman wanting an abortion needs assistance. And now the the complex case is, well, does she have a right to assistance or is is it permissible for somebody to offer assistance if they are prepared to offer that? Now, you can, we, can note, we might get on to discuss those complexities, but the legal con, con, uh, position, of course, is that uh, Roe versus Wade is, I think, likely to be overturned. This would be seismic. Uh, it'd really be a massive change. People are protesting on both sides, particularly the pro-choice side. But I suppose the, the constitutional issue is this. However difficult the issue and whatever the effects may be of doing this, does the Supreme Court actually have a right to decide, or should it have a right to decide, for each individual state legislature what the law should be? Why should it not be left to each state to decide its own laws? And I think, I mean, I, I don't like saying this particularly, but I think it's a rather powerful argument and one that we might want to discuss. Thanks, Piers. That's a pretty good summary of what is, as you say, a complicated situation with lots of things going on, both the the ethics and, and indeed politics of abortion itself, and then the politics and legal situation in the in the US. Uh, Gerald, Fiona, any thoughts from you? Fiona, you go first. Thanks. I mean, one of the very interesting things to me about the potential overturning of the Roe versus Wade judgment is that as as Piers just introduced, you know, when we discuss this topic in philosophy seminars, and when this topic is discussed in politics in the UK, it tends to be in the way that Piers said. So you're weighing up 
the rights of the fetus versus the rights of the woman to choose what to do with her body. However, in the Roe versus Wade case, in the original case, Justice Blackman, who was the person who wrote the opinion about it, said that the reason for his ruling was the right to privacy of women, the right Mm. to their privacy to um, conduct discussions with their um, with their medic and to undergo treatment in a private way. And so when Roe versus Wade is being discussed, if you like, that is what's being discussed. And one of the things that was interesting about that original ruling was that basically the ruling said something like, well, we can't quite pinpoint in the constitution or in the amendments where uh, we think that right to privacy is really given, but we think it's roughly in the 14th Amendment. Go, Go have a look at that. And a lot of people have been very unhappy with that. And that leads to sort of two important points. So the first is that, and this is something that um, Alito says in his judgment, there are other judgments that the Supreme Court have made or opinions that they've given that rely on privacy. And those are the right to contraception, the right to sexual acts between consenting adults and same-sex marriage. And so the one huge worry here is that this is the thin end, end of the wedge. Now, he said, oh, well, all those other things won't be affected by this undoing of the right to privacy in this case. But if it is the undoing of the right to privacy, then, of course, that just opens up the field for an attack on these other rights. And that's very worrying. And the other point I think here is that um, even people who are very in favour of the right to abortion worry about the legal underpinning of the Roe versus Wade judgment. So, for example, Ruth Bader Ginsburg um, thinks that the argument for the right to abortion shouldn't have been based on privacy, um, but should have been based on the violation of equal protection. So there are these sort of tricky um, issues about the very particular way in which the Supreme Court reached the the judgment uh, on the Roe versus Wade case, something that seems uh, is often overlooked, particularly, I think, by people in the UK who are typically just getting stuck into the debate about women's rights versus fetus rights. Thanks, Fiona. That's really helpful. Uh, Gerald? Yeah, so these are very, very complex issues. And uh, a number of different strands have been raised already by Piers and Fiona. I think on the on the legislative issue, um, I think, well, there are different issues, and some of them are orthogonal. So first of all, there's state legislation versus federal legislation. And the second concerns the basis of the le- legislation. Is it is it constitutional or could it just be the product of a statute? I'm not sure that I know what, what the basis is for federal law versus state law. We're talking about fundamental issues of protection uh, for women's rights and fetal rights on one ordinary way of understanding the tension. And that would seem, though I'm far from a scholar of, of, about these things, to at least permit federal legislation. I don't know why. I mean, I, I, don't, I can't think of a positive reason why it should simply devolve to the decisions of the state. I mean, and about the, well, about the philosophical and the political issue, I guess some people think that because the Roe versus Wade 73 decision is underpinning the right, the constitutional right for access to abortion in America, then that should be the hill that um, that they should be prepared to die on. But the thing is, I don't, uh, it, it, it might have a, a somewhat fragile 
or slender intellectual base. Also, that judgment did, it was an exercise in balancing. So the idea is that fetal life isn't significant enough in the first trimester in order to dominate the rights of women to control how their bodies are used. That does actually make a concession. And I I think, in fact, probably the more appealing route is pretty concessive about the personhood of the fetus. So uh, there's a very famous argument that Piers, I think, alluded to indirectly by Judith Thompson. So Thompson's article, which I think came out in 71 or 72, um, Mm -hmm. uh, envisaged, well, it compared abortion to something that just seemed... uh, I mean, very strange. I remember reading this in the university library at the time and just being amazed by why the case was described in this way. But basically, uh, the Society of Music Lovers have kidnapped someone and when he wakes up, uh, his kidneys are connected to a famous violinist who will die without that kind of uh, assistance over several months. Now, Thompson, uh, for the purposes of argument, was prepared... Uh, to assume that fetuses are fully persons, that they have ordinary rights of life. But her question was why someone else should be prepared to provide life-saving assistance at some cost to themselves over several months. So her point was that even though fetuses may have the right to life, the women who are are required to assist, well, is required are required to assist them over that period of time by keeping them alive aren't required and shouldn't be compelled to provide that kind of assistance so um my body my choice that that's the kind of snappy political slogan uh, we associate with the uh, pro abortion movement i don't think i don't think an engagement with these underlying moral issues can really be avoided now that the, there are of course replies there's a whole set of replies to Thompson's argument. It's much studied. There have been, I, I expect, hundreds of articles on it. But I, but I think, I think nonetheless, that they're the issues that, that seem most intellectually productive. I mean, how they get translated into legal awareness of judges, Supreme Court justices, and so on, I'm not sure. And that's a, that's a strategic matter that, that must be thought about. But, 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 but these are the intellectual issues. It is a difficult issue. And that, that's where the action lies, as I see it. I think another area where it's important to really think through what's going on in it, it doesn't typically form part of the standard philosophical uh, discussion in the way you've outlined, uh, Gerald. And again, this is something that Ruth Bader Ginsburg raised. She said, in practice, the overturning of Roe versus Wade simply means poor women don't have a choice. And peers mentioned this as well. You know, a rich woman can travel, you know, can afford to take time off work, travel perhaps hundreds and hundreds of miles to a different state to stay there, pay for treatment and so on and so forth. And she said, you know, it just doesn't make sense as a policy to deny poor women abortion whilst, you know, rich, at the same time, rich women can have an abortion. And the whole sense of equality here and it is you know it's just a huge another huge issue that we really ought to to pay attention to and one that i think speaks to having a federal um across the the whole of the us legislation on this and not devolving it to states individual states yeah i mean just on that fiona i mean I, i've been thinking about this since since we decided we were going to talk about it and there are huge complicated issues and and 
obviously, you know, the, the, the whole issue has exploded on social media and, and a news cycle. And one thing I saw from, from one person on, on Twitter, I think yesterday or the day before, was, was the effect that, um, you know, overturning Roe versus Wade doesn't stop abortions, it just stops safe abortions. Which speaks to your to your point. So, in fact, there's a, there's a, just another thing to to bring out is that this is as a discussion um, something which I think is very illustrative of something that's been going on in, in political philosophy discussions for quite a while, which is that tension between ideal and non-ideal theory. So, us quite properly as philosophers or political theorists or legal theorists, whoever we are, thinking about. The issues themselves about you know whether abortion is is ethically permissible or not in the way that that we've been outlining, but also we're living in a real world right where if this judgment is overturned, it's going to have all sorts of real world consequences, and that's kind of brings in the the ideal kind of thoughts right. So if this is overturned, what in fact is going to happen, which has all of those many implications, some of which you, you've just uh, indicated, uh, Fiona. Right. So having said that, oh my goodness, Gerald and Piers both want to come in. Gerald, you go first, then Piers. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to what Fiona said, and and like like many, I deplore the prospects of the overturning of this and the unequal burdens it imposes on women, poor women, much more disadvantaged than wealthier women. However, I don't think, even strategically, even politically, uh, that can be the bottom line because even if poorer women are disadvantaged relative to more affluent women. What they're disadvantaged in respect of is their right to secure access to abortion. And that's precisely what's at issue. So I think that that consideration, while it, it finds favour with me, but that's because I'm already decided in a, in a permissive, you know, permissive about abortion. I don't think that consideration in and by itself would induce me to become permissive if I were otherwise undecided. Uh, I don't think that can be the fundamental issue. I mean, I think that's right, but I think that um, I think that when a lot of people are thinking of of these issues, in a way, they're it's very tempting as a philosopher to think that the most important issue is the women's rights versus fetus rights, and that's where you have to go to decide all these matters. And I think that I think that we ought to be paying more attention to these wider issues too. And as you say, it's not that it's going to change people's minds on that fundamental issue, but these are, are really important points. Likewise with um, you know, thinking about the implications of the overturning of Roe versus Wade, because it's not just that a right to abort I mean, it is that a right to abortion is denied, but that also includes cases where a woman has been raped or where there's been incest or um, it's unclear to me what happens in cases where the woman's life is itself in danger. It's just not clear to me what happens in those cases. So, you know, I think thinking through the different particular instances of a woman who might be seeking an abortion is is often something that we don't sort of dwell on in philosophy, but actually in practice it's really good to think through those different cases. The age of the woman, for example. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, what um, interests please. me, just think to follow up what Gerald just said, I mean, there clearly are people, including philosophers, including very intelligent and, and well-informed people, who do regard abortion as a very serious wrong for the reasons I outlined at the beginning, that, uh, you know, it puts, to go a bit Aristotelian about it, you don't have to invoke the name. Uh, you know, this is uh, a person uh, who, with a natural potential to become a rational adult, 
and that therefore its abortion is morally wrong, whatever the consequences are of enacting a law against abortion. Now, this raises a second thing we I think we, if there were more time, we could get, we could get into, which is the, connect, the, the rightful connection between ethics and, and law. I mean, um, if you ask most people who are pro-life for the reasons I outlined, why do you think the law should intervene? They probably say, well, that's what laws do. They stop people doing what they want to do. We have laws against infanticide, murder, theft. I mean, that's the natural default is that you have a law against it. But of course, if you press it a bit and say, well, what about adultery? You know, many people who are, think, uh, who are pro-life also think adultery is a serious evil. Many think it's a serious sin. Yet far fewer of those people nowadays would say, oh, the police should be involved. Uh, my wife's been unfaithful, so call 999. Is that just because it's impracticable, it couldn't be enforced? Is it because it's invasion of privacy? I think that probably gets closer to it. Is it because there's, some, there's something particular about the evil of adultery that rules it out as a matter for the police? Um, whereas something about the evil of murder, if abortion, well, an evil of killing, whoever it is once killed, that means it makes it quite properly uh, within the domain of the law. I, I think that's an under-discussed question. Um, we don't, I mean, I suspect, have much time to discuss it here. Um, there's also, I think, just to touch on something I think Fiona raised early on about privacy. I mean, I remember then, I think, Ameri American state law in the late 50s, early 60s, before the sort of social revolution began, uh, that in those days for bad things like contraception were over overruled in the end on grounds of privacy, I think, not on grounds of the ethical permissibility of, of those things. Similar with certain sexual acts in certain southern states, I think that which really not, you know, it's it was privacy. Now, I wasn't sure when Fiona spoke first how privacy was going to get into the abortion debate, but I think I just have to think about it more because I suspect that's something I hadn't thought about uh, with this. But I think we can see how how very difficult these these things are. I mean, I must say, ethically speaking, I find abortion a very difficult question, and I've taught loads of undergraduate courses touching on the main arguments. But I suppose what disturbs me, I mean, I'm quite agnostic about the ethics of it, although I, I wish I could be sort of more pro, well, permissive, so to speak. I mean, the, if, 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 if you take people seriously, you think abortion really is, a, is as bad as killing a five-year-old child or a 10-year-old child, then I suppose you'd have to say, well, suppose that there's a 10% chance of this being true. Uh, well, it's a very, very serious evil. Should we go for permissive laws or should we go for more conservative or restrictive laws? How do you weigh that, that against the, the, the admitted terrible effects on women, particularly poor women, who be impacted by these laws? As for the argument that uh, it'll be done in back streets, I mean, the usual counter argument by pro-life people is, well, why not have, you know, legalized contract killers? You know, if you want someone dead, let's have it done safely and, and legally and, uh, or with drugs. You know, why not have heroin, which is, uh, you know, not adultery? I mean, you get the same sort of counter argument. It's fascinating to know what the what the proper philosophical rigorous moves are in these debates, but unfortunately, it would go on for hours or days or weeks. So I'm just throwing a span in the works here by raising these questions. Thanks, Piers. Gerald. Yeah, um, <laughs> I'm, I'm just aware of how difficult these issues are every every time someone says something. I mean, about the connection between law and morality. I suppose if it was thought that abortion involves murder, which some people do think, then that bit of morality can't fail to involve law. It can't fail to be relevant to law. And we'll just have to devise other stories to explain why the law doesn't make, you know, friends remain faithful friends or spouses uh, faithful spouses and, and so on and so forth. No doubt there'll be there'll be stories we can draw upon. Uh, we don't want this 
state to uh, assume an overweening role, blah, blah, blah. But, but, but to connect this issue to something that like Fiona uh, reminded me of, of even you know, diehard conservatives uh, seem to think, many of them think, that there will be exemptions for certain types of pregnancy, pregnancy which are uh, the result of, say, incest or rape. And it's been, I mean, it's been remarked on before by uh, Ronald Dworkin in his book Life's Dominion that that's puzzling if you really thought that the fetus was a person, an innocent person with uh, the right to life like you and I. We couldn't countenance killing them just because they were the product of incestuous union or rape. And it might even be controversial to say that abortion would be permissible in cases where the woman's life was in danger. I mean, after all, we can't we can't kill one innocent person to save another, or at least, you know, according to common sense, we, we morality, we can't do that. So now we have interesting data. The, the data suggests that uh, though they might be steadfastly opposed to abortion, they're not steadfastly op- opposed to it. Then, in fact, they take a permissive attitude to it in certain cases, and that pattern of data is hard to reconcile with their avowed official claim that abortion is homicidal. So, I mean, Dawkins does different things with that and, and he's convinced very few people. But, but the basic idea is that there are even early um, fetuses, even early fetal life has a kind of inviolability or a value or a sacredness. These were the words that Dawkins used. Um, but there are other sources of value and sacredness as well. We, we can talk about the natural investment in fetal life, but we can also talk about what women, what, what we bring to our lives, uh, the, the human investment in our lives. And the way that these things are balanced out and equilibrated differs among different people. And that should be beyond legal supervision, right? Uh, if the state is going to be neutral in respect of people's different ideas about what constitutes the good life. And that's, as I said, that's an argument that hasn't persuaded too many people, but I think it's interesting. And I think what's definitely interesting is the intuitive data that even diehard conservatives don't appear to have a pattern of reaction to the different cases which upholds their um, official position that abortion always involves the murder of an innocent person. Piers? Yes, I mean, I, to echo that, it's interesting that in, in many of these uh, places where laws are being reversed, I mean, take Poland, for example, where it really has had a massive change. I mean, under communism, it was more or less available on demand. Even the Polish laws, I think, make an exception in the case uh, of, certainly when the mother's life is directly uh, threatened, I mean, to a very serious, to a high degree of probability, one should add, and I think possibly rape and incest. And of course, as Gerald says, if you really believe that a fetus is a, a person, a person with potential, you will not say, well, um, it's, it's lost that status because of how it was conceived. Now, I mean, what I suspect, and this point was made by, I mean, the philosopher Janet Radcliffe Richards 40 years ago in her book, The Skeptical Feminist, she said, well, there's an ideological underpinning for this. The reason why people are prepared to admit these exceptions is they regard the woman in these cases as, quotes, innocent. Yeah, that's to say she uh, didn't have sex. Now, uh, th- th- as a way of explaining, it's just explaining the um, the reason for making these exceptions, I think that is quite plausible. It's a, an unacknowledged, as it were, ideological underpinning. But it doesn't actually settle the ethical question because you know, we still have to confront the pro-life arguments. 
that simply say, well, look, here is a being with a natural potential, and you, you have the usual problem, that psoriasis problem. If you're going to say it's a person at the age of two, but not at two weeks, on what grounds do you draw the... We've got all these familiar problems, which I don't know how to solve. But we have to answer those questions. And I, I know a very um, interesting, rather nice, um, clever Catholic philosopher was talking about these things a few years ago at a conference. He bit the bullet and he said, no, abortion is not permissible in the case of rape and incest. Um, obviously, everything must be done to help the woman. And clearly, we, we've got, we need to get rid of the old-fashioned moralism of the past and, and all that stuff. But even so, the fact remains that this is now a person with an absolute right to life, and we just have to do all we can to help the woman short of granting her an abortion. Now, if you're going to say that's just outrageous, as many people will, I think you have to say, why? I mean, I'm not say, actually taking a stance on this. Certainly, it sticks in the craw with me to, to say that to a woman. But we've got an argument here that simply needs to be teased out. Thanks, uh, Piers. <laughs> uh, any other day. thoughts? I suppose I might want to add that talk of innocence of women in this context is I think slightly problematic so the thought that women are innocent if they've been raped because they haven't consented to sex and so somehow you're guilty if you've consented to sex is um, is deeply deeply problematic and again there are so many difficult issues here you know did you intend to have a baby did you did your circumstances change did you use contraception did you you know, did you did you try to ensure that your partner used contraception? I mean, these are all issues that feed into this debate, and the sort of thought that women can be innocent or guilty in this respect is is deeply problematic. And of course, it it all falls on the women. There's very little discussion of mm-hmm, mm-hmm. well, what about the the man's role in this, and what is incumbent upon the man to do in certain situations, and so on. It's and and no doubt people would say that. Um, uh, a man ought to. Uh, some people might think that a man ought to be involved in the decision of uh, whether um, an abortion should take place or not, and that's very controversial. You know, to to what extent uh, should that should that be the case, or to what extent should this be just a decision for the woman? Again, another can of worms um, that just makes all this so incredibly difficult. Yeah, thanks, Fiona. Yeah, well said. Yes, yeah, certainly. Oh, yeah, go on. Could I? Um, point towards another issue that surrounds the, the the politics of this within America, which I think has come to the fore and is very interesting. So um, there are two Republican women, so Susan Collins and Lita Mar- uh, Lisa Markowski, the Centers for uh, Maine and Alaska, and they have come to the fore because they voted for Brett Kavanaugh and Neil Gorsuch to join the Supreme Court. Um, and their votes, I think, uh, were decisive in putting them on the Supreme Court. And they have come forward to say that they only did that because uh, both of those men promised not to vote against Roe versus Wade and did so in hearings and meetings, some of which took place in the Senate. So they are saying that these men lied under oath. And that's a, that's a very interesting state of affairs. I don't think that we've um, faced cases like this before and if that were shown to be true what would happen i mean i don't think that there are i don't think that there is a precedent set for uh, removing people from the supreme court because they lied under oath concerning their nominations so what happens there i think one of the things that this really speaks to is the politicization of 
justices on the Supreme Court in recent years, particularly thinking about the nominations, the three nominations that Trump made, um, the denial of uh, the rejection of uh, Obama's uh, nomination late in his late in his term. So um, I think there's. I mean, there's always very difficult things to separate politics and the law and so on, but that issue is really coming to a head in the US in a very poignant manner. Yeah, I think, and in fact, I was just going to take us on to that. Poor Rory at 35 minutes in the recording. But yeah, just to note that, I mean, you know, a leak from the US Supreme Court is pretty much unprecedented. And that itself has politicised this, this issue. But then people will say, well, the US Supreme Court kind of sits on Mount Olympus handing out judgments. Um, but in fact, is a, is a highly political um, part of the, of the, of the whole um, framework in, in, in the US. There have been other leaks. Oh, have there? Sorry. Uh, so so um, the, the other leaks have been more minor. They've um, sort of focused on the nature of the discussion right. or they've focused on uh, other other lesser matters, and it's been sort of word of mouth leaks, but which have been confirmed as correct, you know, as 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 actual leaks, not just just made up stories. Um, but this is the first leak of um a, of a written opinion uh, during the deliberative stage. Um, so it's it is treated as a huge deal. People are people are are very shocked, and indeed people are reporting that it used to be that the justices on the Supreme Court had a lot of respect for each other, even if they disagreed quite, you know, on, on substantive matters of law. And they they treated each other with a lot of respect and were very friendly and treated themselves as, you know, this important body um, and respected the privacy and the process of that body. But apparently that has really broken down in recent years too. And uh, there's a lack of collegiality um, and there's a lack of respect. And so, yeah, it will be interesting to see. There's been a, a, an investigation has started on uh, who leaked and why. And there's a lot of speculation about who might have leaked and why. Was it the pro-abortion, um, pro-permissiveness of abortion people or was it the other side? And what what might be the thinking behind leaking? Would it change opinions or would it solidify the judges and their opinions and so on? Yeah, it's also having a big impact on the midterm congressional elections as well. Because no, now people are forced to say what they think about it. Yeah, but but when Donald Trump appointed Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court, um, was it two years ago or so? I think we could all see it coming. This was a political attempt to influence abortion legislation. Uh, and we've known, I mean, the, 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 the pro-life lobby, rightly or otherwise, have been lobbying for very efficiently for decades to get this changed. And it wouldn't be at all surprising if it does. I think it probably will change. And, but then there's the question of federal law that was brought up, I think, by Gerald or, or Fiona at the very beginning. Um, there's a possibility that there could still be federal law that would guarantee uh, the right to abortion, even if it's no longer uh, constitutional. We haven't talked about that, but it's uh, a possibility, I suppose. I don't really yeah. understand American law. But. I mean, looking at all sorts of maps that I've seen with different colours on, it won't surprise, I don't think it surprises anyone who at least only halfway familiar with American politics to see which states would probably uh, not have um, uh, laws in, in favour of abortion and which ones would. Um, and in fact, I think there are some at a time just to kick in just so, just as, uh, as soon as the US Supreme Court strikes down Roe versus Wade. Uh, Fiona? An important point to mention on that is that although when you look at the, the map of states that would um, 
make abortion imper- impermissible. Nonetheless, when you look at opinion polls of American mm. women, um, so in the Gallup poll, May 2021, 80% of Americans thought abortion should be permitted in all or most cases. There are a whole bunch of different um, polls around about that time that, that come up with very similar figures. So it's interesting that a court is clearly going against public opinion on an issue. That doesn't happen too much, too, too many times. Um, and it's also interesting that what's being voted is, in terms of the judgment, the legal judgment that was made, is for a, for a right to be taken away from people. Again, that's that that tends not to happen so much. It's you know courts are typically giving people rights. So there's yeah, there's a lot there's a lot to think through on these issues. Yeah, Gerald, last last thoughts. Then we'll um, yeah, d- just in response to what Fiona said about well, it's true that the incendiary landscape of American politics has affected the Supreme Court, but it and and I suppose that that does something to undermine this idea that the Supreme Court should have this. Uh, legislative influence over American politics, as you said, Simon, it's meant to be Mount Olympus. It's meant to stand above the ugly fray of the battles between left and right, and it looks as though that's not happening. Well, it, but the thing is, it might be happening. It might be that the justices who are part of the Supreme Court. I mean, they can be. You know, it's predictable what they might argue for. Nonetheless, they may have integrity. I mean, they, 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 they may have uh, peculiar commitments in respect of the Constitution and the law. There might be originalists about the Constitution. Um, it doesn't mean that they're the creatures of political forces. Um, it, it simply means, um, if, I mean, the, the point is they were, they were selected for that reason, because they could be depended upon to deliver the goods by, you know, Either left or right, um, but, but whether um, I mean it's a big issue. <laughs> what 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 uh, place the Supreme Court has in uh, the overall constitution in American life? The division between the Supreme Court and and what Congress does, and I suppose it is in danger of being slightly undermined by by recent um, by recent events events over the last couple of decades. And yeah, I mean it, it, Fiona's. Uh, talking about you know unfriendly relations between the justices, that 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 that, that seems to be some sort of subsidiary evidence for that as well. So I, I don't know what what can be done about that. Good. Okay. Well, thank you all for um, taking us through, uh, as we said, a lot of complicated issues. Let's leave that sensitive and difficult topic there. Uh, we'll see you all in the next segment when we will be going to the polls. <music> And welcome back. As we record, the polls are open in the UK for various local elections. Earlier this week, a bill that was passed that changed how voting might happen and be regulated, a bill that's attracted a fair bit of controversy. Um, Gerald, you brought this to our attention. Do you want to say a little bit more about it, please? Yes. Um, So the Electoral Act insists in in future elections, not not the ones today, on voter photo ID. And... That's expected to depress turnout, especially among poorer or more disadvantaged voters who, I take it, would be antecedently more likely to vote for left-leaning parties. Uh, And many think this is problematic, but I think it's interesting to see why it's problematic. I mean, if we were designing a democratic system from scratch, then I think there'd be a natural justification for building in 
some voter ID requirement in order to reduce the chances of electoral fraud or voter impersonation. Uh, Now, we're not designing one from scratch. We're amending a system so that it'll have a different effect uh, on future um, in future elections. So, so what's the problem? I mean, exactly. I mean, it, it, there might be two causes for concern. I mean, first, we might think that any policy with an expected reduction in turnout is a bad servant of democracy, is anti-democratic for that very reason. And I'm not sure about that. There might be something to it, but I'm not sure about it. It seems to me that we could impose some requirements and that they would, in fact, penalise the you know, the the disorganised, the forgetful, there'd be some depression on turnout. Um, but it's not clear that that would be unreasonable. We can ask voters to do things to show that they are, uh, that, that they are who they present themselves as being. But there's another concern as well. Um, because the expected drop in turnout is more likely to affect those who are poor or disadvantaged, which gets back to a point that Fiona was making in part one about the effects of the overturning of Roe versus Wade on pregnant women in in, in America. I mean, that means in turn that they'd be more likely to vote for left-leaning parties, as I said. Um, So is this simply a cynical ploy to improve conservative electoral chances? That, That might be a separate complaint. The complaint wouldn't be fastened on the very existence of voter ID requirements as such, uh, the complaint would attach to the passing of a law that was uh, intended specifically to improve conservatives' electoral chances and disimprove the chances of its political rivals. So there are different things to think about, I think. Okay, great. Thanks, Gerald. And perhaps just a couple of thoughts from me before I, I bring in Piers and, and Fiona. Cause, so the electoral bill's got lots of things going on with it as well, which we probably should just note. So there's changes for expats, so uh, British citizens living abroad, and changes for non-UK citizens living in this country, which has been uh, controversial, and also changes to the Electoral Commission, which is not now as independent as it once was, and people are quite worried about that. I think that's actually, for me, that's probably the most worrying aspect of this uh, bill. So I've got lots of things to say about what you just said, but perhaps before I come in, I'll let Fiona and, and Piers have a go. Um, So when the Conservatives introduced um, the idea of voter ID, they said it was to stop uh, fraud. And um, when people actually looked at the figures in the seven years to 2020, three people have been prosecuted uh, for voter ID fraud. Um, And then the Conservatives switched line and they said, actually, it's not about that. It's um, about... Um, boosting people's confidence in elections. Um, But when you look at the figures on that, 90% of people in the UK are very confident in our elections. And as Gerald said, you know, putting this um, restriction in is going to reduce lack of participation. And I think a lack of participation in politics is a serious, serious problem for our society. And I think that not only should we not have um, ID 
um, photo ID required. I think that we should be moving to increase participation in lots of different ways. So, for example, we should have multi-day voting. There shouldn't be one day of voting. There should be an entire week of voting. Voting should be able to take place at weekends where typically more people are free. The part of the legislation is to undo what was done during COVID, which is allow anyone to have a postal vote who wants it without giving a reason. Uh, so I think that we should have postal voting. I think that we should have post- we should have voting in shopping centres. Apparently there's research that suggests if you put voting uh, stations in places where people go, much more people, many more people are, are likely to vote. And you can have voter registration that takes place on the day so that you don't have to register weeks or months in advance. And I also think that we should have... Um, a system where people are obliged to help out in running elections. So just as we have jury duty, I think we should have election duty and people are forced to take part in organising elections, running elections and seeing how it all works so that everyone has a good understanding of how elections work. And I think that if we don't take these kinds of steps, the lack of participation in our, in our political life is going to be a very serious problem for us as a society. Yeah, thanks. Fiona. Yeah, some thoughts from me. I mean, just thinking about what... The two of you said, but also thinking about this coming into the recording. I suppose there's a there's a broad question for me, which is what is it to be a citizen? I mean, in a democracy or in a in a liberal democracy, and in a liberal democracy that finds itself being the sort of liberal democracy we are, right? So is it that you know, citizenship is very much um seen as a as something that should be honored and treasured, and you're really lucky to be a citizen? Um, and we need to make sure that you're the right sort of person to be voting. I mean, all of this is kind of very nebulous, but it speaks to the idea of, yeah, we need to make sure you're the right sort of person, so we want your photo ID. Or is it just, you know, we need to just increase participation. If you're a citizen, anyone's a citizen, again, quite nebulous ideas, but it speaks to some of the thoughts that, that, that Fiona was just giving, some of the practical, practical measures. I think I probably err on the side of, particularly where we are right now with democracy, I think it's fraying in our country and fraying in all, in all sorts of countries. So I think we should be doing everything we can to increase not just voting, but but participation. So the, the sort of last thing that Fiona just mentioned about having electoral duty or something like, like that. Um, because otherwise, the, I mean, I, I, you know, the way you introduced it, Joel, was very good. Right? There's, there's this thought that, you know, confidence in the, in the integrity of elections, um, but actually... I think a more serious problem is just confidence in the democratic process and democracy generally and getting more people involved. I think that's it. That's a more a more serious matter. Anyway, those, those are some thoughts from, from me. Uh, anyone else? Yes. Um, on the issue of uh, voter ID, and I, I, I read this uh, this proposed topic without any really firm intuitions, and it's it, I suppose, if anything, I thought it's probably a pretty good idea to have photo ID, then I read the uh, the pieces that um, Gerald, I think, and, and and Simon circulated, and then I wasn't so sure. I mean, clearly, you need safeguards against fraud. Um, you need safeguards against impersonation, multiple presentations, um, invention of bogus identities. Uh, but that seems to me to be covered quite well by the system of when you turn up at a at a polling station, you say who you are, and then they try to match that to a name on their on their list. So, um, and given also the information that I can't verify, but I think in one of the pieces circulated, uh, that there's actually very little evidence of massive voter fraud. It looks as though that um, this step to have photo ID may be going, um, may be over vigilant. 
the, the question about whether it disadvantages um, poorer people or, or who might vote for left-wing parties, that could be a valid concern. But I suppose the underlying concern is whether certain people would be put off or it would be too difficult for people to vote uh, if they have to go through these bureaucratic hurdles, um, if they have to have the photographs taken. I mean, it can be getting a passport photograph, getting a driving license can be a bit of a minor admin hurdle. It can be you know, very tempting to procrastinate and put off because you have to devote a few hours of your time filling up forms and going to the right place. And, and if you fill the form up wrong, you've got to do it again. So uh, that's a, we should make it as easy as possible for people to participate. But the other question that I think both of the, all of you raised is about participation. I mean, it's long been noted that um, party po- the two-party politics, the sort that you know people of my generation grew up with, has been fragmenting. That in my day, it was that nice Mr. Heath and that nice Mr. Wilson who were arguing uh, on TV, you know, and there was Labour and we knew what Labour stood for. It's basically you know, workers' rights, union rights, and so on. Conservatives stood for well, you know, the creation of wealth. And it's been, and then we have the Greens, and that there, and, and then we have all these fragmenting groups. And I think. There's a lot of a lot of many people are just put off by the present political system. Uh, they don't identify with the Tories. We don't even know what Tories are. I mean, are they libertarians? Are they old-fashioned Burkean conservatives? Well, no longer these days, it seems. Uh, what exactly are they? What is Labour? Is it a socialist party? Well, Jeremy Corbyn um, thought it should be, but he um, was massively uh, his career was ended really from within. And I think people have got got onto single issues. Uh, the environment's clearly one. Identity politics is another one. And so I think we just need to, to rethink creatively what politics is and what, what I suppose, the ethical currents are that are that should be captured by the, the party system, because it does seem to be somewhat broken. I think people are picking up on that. And there are also interesting questions, of course, um, in Scotland and Northern Ireland. So in the, <laughs> in the elections coming up, um, the people of Northern Ireland are voting um, for members of their assembly. And it looks like Sinn Féin uh, may win. The polls at the moment are suggesting that. And in Scotland, of course, the SNP have a, a majority and it looks as if they're going to maintain that majority. And it looks as if, well, certainly the question of whether there can be another referendum is clearly to the fore in Scotland, whether that can be legal, whether that can be um, agreed to and so on. And so, yeah, there are there are very interesting issues um, in 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 places other than England and Wales that are are you know to the fore in you know at this time. Um, and I think that another interesting issue about local elections, qua local elections, is that they have this interesting tension. You know, people want to vote on local matters and who runs the council, and uh, there are often a lot of independent people standing that you know attract people's allegiance and so on. But people also want to, at the same time, use it as a method of signalling to the Westminster parties, uh, you know, how they feel about what's going on at the time. And um, some might think that's a little bit unfortunate. And some might think that it would be better if people had a greater interest in local politics. Local politics arguably affects people's lives perhaps more on an everyday basis than Westminster national politics. And often people don't know how the um, how the voting system works for the local elections. So um, certainly in Scotland, we get a leaflet through our door a few uh, a month or so before the elections that explain, you know, it's a t- single transferable vote system and so on. But um, studies that have been done in Scotland asking people about uh, how they think the elections are going to work, so that you know. Mo- 
a lot of people have no idea how it works. And um, it would be nice, again, to increase uh, participation and understanding of local politics as well as national politics. Yeah, just, uh, just a couple of thoughts from me, and then I'll bring... Geraldine, uh, first thought is, uh, yeah, so it, next year, if there is a Scottish referendum, I think I'll probably get you back on back on the pod for that episode, Fiona. That could be interesting. Um, and secondly, yeah, just just picking up, because we moved away from, from, the, from the issues that we started with and now thinking about the elections themselves. And of course, there's been a lot of discussion in the last two or three days that a number of local Conservative councillors are actively distancing themselves from Westminster Tories. And you've got big signs saying local conservatives not blue either uh, but a kind of kind of greenish color um, kind of dark turquoise uh, which is very interesting and lots of the leaflets just don't mention Westminster Conservative Party at all um, Gerald I take Fiona's points about the importance of um, increasing voter registration educating people about the significance of of elections, about, you know, how the processes work. That seems right. I mean, and I take Simon's point that whatever these nebulous ideas about citizenship and the value of citizenship amount to, it's a kind of honour to be a citizen uh, endowed with the right to vote. I think those two currents of thought aren't inconsistent with voter ID requirements as such. I mean, you, you you might still ask, why now? And do we trust the people who are proposing this? But you, you, you could combine, uh, you know, imaginative ways of increasing voter registration with the requirement to show a form of identity. And it, it might be, you know, we, we, need, we may need to be imaginative and pluralist about the forms of um, identity that have to be produced, right? So if we thought that only a passport would do, for example, or a driving license, that would plainly disadvantage some people who don't have driving licences and don't have passports because they have no uh, reason to leave the country or they can't afford to leave the country. So obviously problematic, but, but, but the very idea of ID requirements as such could be seen, I think, as, an, as a constituent in an overall package of policies that actually upheld the integrity of the system because uh, for those people who are for some reason, worried about the integrity of the system, they would then be reassured by the existence of these policies that made voter impersonation much more difficult uh, to engage in in elections. I take Fiona's point that there's not much evidence that this is going on. The same issue happens in America, but again, in America, like like the last issue we're discussing, it's more incendiary, it's angrier. And again, and, and the same, and the same reply there. So you, you distrust the people who uh, pretend to be so concerned about the integrity of the system when there's not much evidence um, that the system is being undermined in that way. But that seems combinable with thinking that you know, as a constituent of of a system that's well designed, that has integrity, the voter ID itself isn't a problem. We all want to come in. <laughs> so, can I say what, one thing? So something we haven't just, uh, just kind of more factual, really. One thing we haven't mentioned, of course, is that in some countries they do have voter registration, but then they have the state issuing voter ID pretty much free for anyone who wants it. So, you know, addressing your point, which I think is, is quite, quite a good one, uh, Gerald, about passports and driving licenses and so on. But of course, the, 
So, so that was tried kind of a few years ago, indeed under successive governments. They've said, well, let's just bring in voter ID and it'll be, I mean, a, a voter ID card and it will be free, perhaps. And then this was kind of knocked back by lots of people with various, you know, libertarian or liberal um, arguments saying, oh, we shouldn't be, you know, the state shouldn't be kind of intervening in this. People should be left on their own. So there's an interesting kind of really basic tension here, I think, in some of these arguments across time in that, um, yes, you're free, to, you're free to vote in an election, but you need to pass certain sorts of threshold. And in order to do that, we're not going to give you the, perhaps the resources you need, i.e. a simple voter ID card. Uh, free because we we respect your liberties and then there's there's still there's that whole issue of of freedoms and, and what you're free and able to do in a society which of course we've touched on in different ways and if we had a system episodes. of compulsory voting as they do in australia that might yeah, uh, yeah. Um, in, engage citizens i mean as presumably in australia you can you can go in and spoil your paper nobody knows that but you still have to have to turn up i think i i think i'd be against that though maybe i'm just um defaulting to what I'm used to. I don't know. But I suppose a, a system of compulsory voting and a system of, of compulsory photo ID might re-engage citizens. But then you might want to argue for people's freedom to be disengaged. I mean, that's just as much a democratic uh, choice. Mm. And, anyway, and many people, I think, do want to be disengaged, particularly given the, the present state of the political parties and, uh, and especially the, the sort of moral character, I think, shown by many, um, well, many people in the current administration, although no doubt that's not confined uh, to them. Uh, with beer gate and all these sorts of things, um, I mean, I suppose I have, as I said, I have no strong instincts either way. But I, but the question is, is there a clear and present need for voter ID? Why? In what way does the system not work? If it ain't broken, don't fix it. Um, I actually, as it happens, I've lost my polling card. I thought I knew where it was. I'm going to turn up and just say who I am, and I presume they're going to see my name on a list and they'll they'll, they'll allow me in. And I don't want people coming in to saying, "Oh no, I'm Piers Ben. I'm Piers Ben." No, we don't want you know, many people impersonating me, but I'm not sure that we that the system is broken as it is. I know Northern Ireland is sometimes talked about, but then in Northern Ireland, particularly in the 70s and 80s, there was a, a genuine amount of voter intimidation, impersonation and, and fraud for obvious reasons. Northern um, Ireland have had voter ID um, yes, for many years now. That reason, so yeah, yeah. Yeah. Separate there. Yeah. 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 I think there's only one Piers Ben, surely. Uh, uh, there's another one in Reading, an artist, apparently. But uh, I don't, don't think. Yes, yes, you will. We better make sure he doesn't vote. Doesn't vote where you are, Piers. Uh, Fiona, do you want to come in because you had your hand up? <laughs> I was going to make much the same point as you, Simon. That, oh, right. um, that if we are going to have people having to produce photo identification, then we should have national identification cards that get sent out to you, much like you get on your 16th birthday. You get your national insurance. A card sent out to you will get your voter ID card, and then why don't then why aren't we just moving to a system of national ID cards? And of course, the very people who want voter ID do not want national ID cards, and so yeah, that's um, a, a very interesting contradiction that those people seem. Yeah, to which, which of course isn't very explicit in any of these news stories. Although you know, absolutely, you, you, you're quite right. I, I'd spotted that when all these discussions were were happening, but I think it. It's kind of there in the atmosphere. I think it's one of those, another thing that adds to this air of mistrust about what are the real reasons for for this legislation uh, and this particular part of the legislation coming in. Um, it just looks like a kind of gerrymandering, frankly. Yes. 
no, a slippery slope to identity cards, the sort that Tony Blair proposed in the early 2000s and was eventually rejected. Sorry. Another interesting issue is, as we've already spoken about, you know, in Northern Ireland, you've already had voter ID being introduced. Um, in Scotland, in the local ev- elections, you can vote if you're 16 and over. In England, 18 and over. So there's a, the rules by which different countries are uh, participating is changing. The issue of whether younger people should be voting is very interesting. I am in favour of it. Again, I think it increases buy-in of people. I think young people are often quite excited to vote. Good on them. Um, they, they, um, they often have strong opinions, quite informed opinions, often because they're taking modern studies at school and so their teachers are telling them about you know politics and often they they're very interested so I, I think that's good and I think we should uh, move UK-wide to, to having people 16 and over voting. Yeah Gerald? Yeah well yeah I mean I, I'm not sure what I think about lowering the voting age I didn't actually know that about Scotland uh, to, to be honest but um there have been arguments I've seen over the last few months, people defending, uh, I mean, David Runciman, I think Martin O'Neill has one or two uh, as well, um, defending the right of children to vote. I think yeah. Runciman goes as low down as six. Um, yes. I, I'm not sure I want a world uh, <clears throat> where, you know, the, the parties that are voted in are, are the parties that were returned by six-year-olds. Um, that's... We, we want a more grown-up politics, don't we? I mean, how how could politics be at all grown-up if it had to appeal to children? Well, there's that issue, and and there's an issue that peers raised. That I, I'm I'm unsettled about the whether voting should be compulsory. I've never quite seen. I mean, if we're worried about uh, disengagement with the democratic process, with you know democracy fraying, as Simon put it then that would be a way, perhaps a crude way, of you know, necessitating re-engagement with it. You, even if you were spoiling your ballot paper, you'd be forced to turn up and indicate your preference or indicate your refusal to give a preference. Maybe that would be some sort of short, sharp shock um, in order to make us re-engage with the democratic process. Um, I'm not con- I mean, I'm not convinced that it will have a great effect. I mean, surely it would simply foster resentment to among people who are determined not to vote. Um, so I'm not sure it would do that. Perhaps the idea is that it would change habits or that regardless of the effects it has on the psychologies of different voters, that's what it is to be a citizen. If you're a citizen, you're meant to be politically active. You're meant to be a political participant. That means you're not merely have a right to vote, you have a duty to vote as well. You're required to vote because you're a citizen. It's, um, I, I, I'm not wedded to that, but perhaps it's because I just don't see the issues clearly enough. I, I, I don't see clearly enough an argument that connects us from the basis for democracy to the requirement um, that we vote, or at least a requirement that is backed up by the force of law. Um but I, I, I don't rule it out, but I, I, I don't feel vividly one way or another about it. So on the short, sharp shock, uh, it turns out that research suggests you only need a fine of the order of a parking ticket to get most people to vote. Um, so it's a very, very mild shock that needs to be applied to get people to vote, you know, 
a small fine encourages people. It seems like that that indicates that you don't you don't need much to tip people over into voting, and and I think yeah. that's a good idea. I just wonder if there's something analogous to a public health argument you might use about about the, the prima facie due to the vote, which may arguably be enforceable. Though it's, that's a different question. I mean, just as with vaccinations. I mean, people mount the public health argument to get it um, vaccinated, not just protect yourself, but protect other people. Uh, I mean, you could, I suppose, mount a kind of political public health argument for at least nudging people rather strongly, if not making them vote. But then I suppose you, you can imagine a counter argument that this disenfranchises people who sincerely believe in revolutionary politics and who don't actually believe in the uh, democratic political system, or people who have a serious moral objection to all political parties because they're all founded on morally wrong and false premises. Um, I don't know, maybe there's a paper in this. These are just embryonic thoughts, but perhaps they could go somewhere. I would think that the ability to spoil your ballot paper would um, assuage people who uh, didn't like any of the parties or, you know, I think that's a... In fact, I think it's more powerful as a statement to spoil yeah. your ballot paper because, you know, you took the time to go in and to say, I don't like this. Whereas if you don't vote, it's like, you know, you're more or less saying, meh, uh, yeah. we don't know what you think. We don't know if you just don't care. Whereas going in and spoiling your val- your ballot paper is really making a statement. Yeah, that's right. So abstention is just staying away because you can stay for all so- stay away for all sorts of reasons where this is a deliberate act. So in fact, it actually, you're, you're right, Finn, I've always thought this, it's it's far more powerful um, as a, and, and therefore it would be taken more seriously by, by the political class that, you know, if 40, 50% of people are forced to vote and yet they abstain. Hey, something's going wrong. Um, so, in fact, I, I've always been in favour of um, of compulsory voting. Yeah. Um, but on that bombshell, perhaps wow. we should stop that segment there. And, and, <laughs> and actually, Piers has got us onto public health ethics. Uh, so perhaps we'll, we'll stop that there, and we'll uh, see you on the next segment when we're going to be um, living with COVID. And welcome back. COVID's over, right? Well, perhaps not. People are still catching COVID across the world and many people are dying with COVID and some from COVID in the UK. Uh, Reports are coming in all the time of lockdowns and the restrictions in some countries. In China at the moment, there are very severe restrictions affecting millions and millions of people. On the other hand, in many countries, many people don't seem to be that bothered. Is this situation what living with COVID looks like? Joel, do you want to comment a little more for us? Yeah. So it's kind of strange. I think this is the first time that COVID has come up in this podcast. And it, and just consider how dominant it was for, for for months. I mean, a couple of years, it was really, well, I mean, for some periods of the pandemic, it was the only thing that any of us could, could really think about. So about the status of living with COVID, um, I mean, I, I suppose there are two ways of looking at it. We might think, well, we're now buoyed up by high levels of vaccine protection. We're no longer immunologically naive or innocent. There's been a lot of COVID about. Our immune systems have wised up to it. Perhaps now is the time to put our social lives on a new footing, which was the old footing, where we we're not obsessed with it. We're not obsessed with the statistics, and we no longer see each other as basically vectors of disease and we re-embrace the benefits of being able to come and go 
as we please. These are substantial benefits. And we were never going to get them back because Omicron and its descendants will probably never go away. Uh, we've, we've, we've gone past the point where we can effectively eradicate COVID. Given that reality and given the fact, I mean, I naively supposed when news of the vaccines uh, loomed up on the horizon that this would mean I wouldn't get COVID. Uh, what it means is that I can get COVID, but it's less likely to do a, a real number on me. Perhaps given all of that, it's overall justified to do something which from another perspective looks ostrich-like. It looks as though we're just putting our head in the sands because the numbers are still quite high. We're objectively in the situation that we seem to be when Plan B in England was imposed in late 2021 and everyone was kind of panicking and scrambling in order to keep themselves safe for Christmas. It's, it's strange that we've just overturned that, but maybe it's justifiable because otherwise we weren't going to do that. We weren't going to re-embrace the benefits of social, ordinary social life. On the other hand, um, we might think, well, look, that there are small costs that were involved in living with COVID before uh, the complete abandonment of restrictions. We'd test ourselves, we'd wear masks. These seem like small costs in themselves, and they did something to stem transmission. And it's still the case, if it was the case then, that we should be reluctant to infect other people. It's a nasty disease. It has lethal outcomes in some cases. It has long-term health implications in other cases. And even if it's just little worse than a cold or flu, we, we wouldn't intentionally do that either. So I, I can see the case um, on both sides. Okay, thanks, uh, Gerald. Uh, just to point out, we have talked about COVID before in the very yeah. first episode. Right. But but don't worry, I won't. I won't tell you off for not listening to that. that first I, episode. I started listening to that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Fiona, Piers, any any thoughts from you, Fiona? Um, so I think that we um, should be wearing masks. I think that we should still be testing for a number of reasons. One of the things that was interesting about COVID was that people were sort of invoking the spirit of World War Two and communities coming together and pulling together and um, how we were all helping out and so on. And given that there are people who have underlying health problems and who have lack of immunity and so on, the thought that it's it's an imposition to put on a mask when you go into the supermarket just seems quite extraordinary to me. I know that the legislation in Scotland, England, Wales, Northern Ireland is all different. In Scotland, um, it's no longer the law that you have to wear a face covering indoors, but it's still strongly recommended. But of course, as soon as the law disappeared, the number of people wearing masks just fell off substantially. I would say there's about maybe about 50% of people are wearing masks. It depends on the exact situation. That's my own experience around and about Scotland. Um, but I think it's extraordinary that people aren't wearing masks. I think that they ought to be, not to protect themselves, but to protect other people, right? That's the big thing. I mean, it, it does protect you to some degree, but the more important thing is that it protects other people. And why on earth would we not be willing to do that? And another reason that we should be wanting to do that and I think we should be still thinking carefully about what we do and, and don't do is the threat of new variants the more that COVID 
infects new people, the more that we're likely to get new variants, new variants that may be very problematic, lead to a lot of deaths, lead to future lockdowns and so on. So I think there's a lot of reasons still to be cautious. Um, Obviously, people's mental health can suffer when they can't be as sociable as they want to be. But wearing a mask in a supermarket, that that doesn't affect that. And and I think that we should all be doing that. And, And I think we should actually still be reflecting on what's important to us, what social interactions matter to us and do we really want and really need and what what ones can we still be cautious about and cut down on i well i think that there's so many questions involved and so many different sorts of values and considerations to weigh up and that's why i found the whole issue very difficult during the first lockdown i mean i take it we're talking now about um presumably voluntary measures like wearing masks so i don't know whether people think it should still be enforced we're not talking about closing closing all shops and making people work at home. I mean, there's a question about the, the accept, about the level of acceptable risk. There's obviously no such thing as a risk-free life, and we've never had lockdowns because of winter flu, even though winter flu can claim about 20,000 lives a year, uh, or in, in bad years anyway. And we also know there's a cost to measures, even measures like face masks. I also think it's worth clarifying that, I mean, where are some, some public health advocates of particularly um, a sort of, um, I was going to say authoritarian, but maybe that's the wrong word, kind, were saying, well, the only thing we should be thinking about is stopping infections and de- deaths from this particular illness, and everything else is secondary to that. Well, if that's your policy, you go on with indefinite lockdowns, indefinite um, social restrictions, and so on. Um, there's not just one thing at stake. I mean, um, the, mo- the human the saving human life is not, all, or, or, present, or preventing seriousness is not always the most important thing we should be thinking about. But it's clearly a very important thing. And I mean, I did a podcast on this myself a, a few weeks ago, plug plug, um, with a, a couple of philosophers and a writer on this question. And the, the the philosopher who works on the Bioethics Council was saying that the government have asked him, "What's the acceptable number of deaths?" As if you could say, "Ah, it's one hundred sixty-five thousand one hundred thirty-seven." And that's the cut-off point. That's obviously absurd. I mean, there are no clear answers to these questions. We have to use judgment on these questions. Now, I don't know whether we should be wearing masks. To be honest, I am quite cautious. I do wear the mask on the London Underground still. I'm thinking of stopping soon, but I notice most people aren't. On the other hand, I'm no longer wearing masks in supermarkets, though I didn't until quite recently. And I don't really have an answer. I think we're dealing with plural values here, which can't always be weighed up against each other. We are dealing with a, a situation where there's risk, but many things have risks, and we don't go around trying to protect ourselves against all risks. There's also a question about the uh, well about the level of infection that's still around. So I'm I'm somewhat agnostic about the whole thing. Um, you know, I, I think it, the more I thought about this, the more difficult the whole question seems seems to be. I mean, there were the the sort of lockdown fundamentalists two years ago who were saying the most important thing is lockdown forever if necessary. And never mind the costs of, of, particularly on the vulnerable, because don't forget who's impacted by lockdowns. Then we have people saying, oh, no, personal liberty is all that matters. Nothing else matters at all. Uh, you know, and if you're infecting people who voluntarily adopted the risk, as you would, in theory, if people are all maskless and they've all accepted the risk, well, that's a voluntary association. Then we have counter arguments about people who couldn't avoid taking the risk because of their jobs or people who uh, were going to be infected anyway. I mean, I'm still in turmoil to some extent about these questions. So sorry. 
I mean, it's clear that there are uh, costs to lockdown. Treatments for cancer, for example, were affected. People coming forward for diagnosis for cancer was affected. People's mental health, a whole bunch of considerations. But what we're talking about here is wearing a mask and testing for yeah. whether you have COVID. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. it's so minor. I just can't see why we wouldn't do it. Um, I mean, the question for, for how long lockdowns go on um, and so on are, are very important questions. And, you know, I think the main reason for them was to stop the NHS being overwhelmed. Um, so I'm not I'm not proposing we should go, go into lockdown. But no, no, sure, I, know, I know, I know, I know, yeah. Well, the masks are quite restrictive. You can't, so if you can't see someone's face, uh, you know, they're, they're in subtle ways, they're quite, um, it's not, you might get used to it, but... You know, seeing someone's face is quite important. But I take the point. There are counterbalancing considerations to do with levels of risk and so on. Uh, Gerald? Yeah, I I can see the force of Fiona's points. It, uh, wearing a mask does seem uh, f- like a fairly small encumbrance compared to what could happen if you don't wear a mask and there's an infection that wouldn't otherwise take place and there's a really bad outcome from that. But But then I'm... I'm troubled, and I've been troubled by by this since the very beginning, two years ago, about the flu comparison. Because as Piers points out, we don't restrict ourselves um, to stop people from getting flu, even though flu is a killer, right? It's just under the radar, and we don't think about it. And I suppose we assign those deaths to natural causes with a bit of help from, from the everyday environment. We didn't do that with COVID, but of course, once we're aware of these risks, then the danger is it becomes indefensible to just go about your normal business, knowing that what I'm sacrificing on any particular instance is just you know, a night out with friends uh, versus death. Night out with friends, death. It looks as though I should sacrifice my night out, right? So, I mean, and this, this bears a certain resemblance to a really famous argument um, by Peter Singer about the costs we should endure to save other people from bad things. So he, he gives us uh, kind of, I mean, it's a rather hackneyed case now. It's not, it's not really his fault, but it's still talked about 50 years later of someone is on their way to an appointment. She sees a child drowning in a pond. Intuitively, she should miss her appointment. She should muddy her, her shoes. She should, you know, um, and in order to rescue the child from drowning. Now that, that, as an instance, that seems pretty clear, right? If we're, unless we're completely skeptical about duties to save other people or rescue them, unless we think everything we ought to do is somehow something that we've already contracted into, then we're probably going to go along with Singer on that. That can be significantly compared to the sacrifices that perhaps we are all making in order to prevent transmission of a potentially lethal disease. But here's the thing, when, when you start iterating that, it's not clear what we think. It's not, I mean, I, I'm not clear what I think. Um, if, if I had to miss appointment every day and buy a new pair of shoes every day, I, I'm, I'm not sure that, that I'd be under a duty to do something that then rescued a life. And I think in general, we think we understand these kind of balancing exercises. We think we know what's involved in deciding what we need to do compared you know, when we compare potential outcomes from, from how we act or refrain from acting. But I, I don't think we do. And I think it was important to the pandemic that it, it was a designated emergency. 
we made special efforts to uh, protect each other. And that was helped, by the, by the way, by the fact that we all posed a mutual threat to each other. We, we, at the beginning, we, each of us was in some sort of danger uh, that seemed pretty indeterminate, but it could be really, really scary. But then after a while, we know that the risks differ. And, and I think we're just reluctant to make those sacrifices on a long-term or even medium-term basis. The other consideration is that we might think, we might agree with Fiona, that we're, we have very strong moral reasons for taking these fairly elementary precautions. But now what difference is made by the state compelling us to do that? If we have moral reasons, then why shouldn't these moral reasons be reasons that the state enforces? We're talking about the loss of life and grave illness, after all. So I'm wondering if it could be conceded that we have strong moral reasons for taking these elementary precautions, but nonetheless that some value is gained by the state not compelling us to do that. Oh, and by the way, just, just as a kind of point, Fiona noted that, well, around half the people she comes across in Glasgow are still doing this. I mean, but the show's over in England, at least yeah. at least where I'm yeah. Yeah, me too. I, I mean, I'm I'm typically the only person in a rail carriage who wears a mask, and I don't wear masks in shops anymore. I I, I just feel out of place. I mean, people look at me weirdly, and um, maybe I should do that, but I, I've stopped doing it. And I, you know, what there is one part of me is just relieved that we are back to normal. This is what we all hungered for in those dark days of lockdown in 2020. And 21. So I think there's something gained by the resumption of that, even if, alas, COVID hasn't gone away. I think one thing to be said is, are we really back to normal? Because if you look at the state of the health service, if you look at accident and emergency waiting times, they're they're at the highest level they've ever been. People are sitting waiting, you know, hours and hours and hours and hours and hours even to be seen by a doctor who are in significant trouble. Um, if you look at the capacity of the NHS to deal with hip replacements, knee replacements, cancer treatment, serious operations, the waiting lists are enormous. The strain on the NHS, even through doctors and nurses themselves contracting COVID and not wanting to give it to their patients and so on. I mean, the NHS is under such pressure at the moment probably the most pressure it's been under ever right now I would say and I don't think we are back to normal and I think that that is being so glossed over by everyone that it's quite disgraceful I think and the, and the poor not doctors and nurses who are having to work under these conditions a number of them who are saying they want to leave the profession is higher than it's ever been which again is very very worrying. Yeah just a, a thought from me and then I'll, I'll, I'll come back to you Gerald. So, I, I mean, just a, a different stress from, from the one that just Fiona's just given. I don't know whether we're all back to normal, right? So, so people who have all sorts of different considerations, which make means they're vulnerable, um, are now uh, very far from being normal. In fact, they're, they're now kind of basically in lockdown in their house, more so, if, if that's possible, than they were when everyone was in lockdown. Because, of course, there's lots of people uh, who aren't taking care of, of of what they're doing. I mean, just just as, as you was talking about in Leeds, Gerald. You know, I'm one of the very few people who walks around, you know, a supermarket or anywhere else with a with a, with a mask. Uh, but you know, I, but like you, I feel kind of out of place. And sometimes I'll confess, you know, that there's places I go where I'm not wearing a mask. Um, but but I'm I'm quite conscious uh, every so often of the fact that other people aren't back to normal. In fact, they're more scared than they they've ever been. But why don't you come back in? I mean, th- these these are very difficult 
cases. I mean, there are people who probably are more stranded and isolated because what they don't want to do is take the risk of being infected in a relatively unregulated setting, whereas they might have been more likely to do that uh, in settings where distancing was observed and people were wearing masks and it just looked like a less hazardous environment for them. That's tricky. So what's the solution? I mean, the solution would be if we thought um, that we had to do what it whatever it took uh, to make them feel that they could rejoin ordinary social life is that we would then, you know, endure distancing and we would be wearing masks pretty much a long-term basis. That argument can be made, but I think it's a really, uh, I mean, I, I struggle with the difficulty of it. And I think um, that might be significant because on one way of looking at it, it just looks like a no-brainer. You, you just accept these minor costs in order for people, for certain people to be able to join ordinary social life in a more thoroughgoing way, as well as keeping infections down. But it doesn't seem like a no-brainer to me. It seems like a very difficult issue. So, I mean, in a way, I'm just confessing that I'm still searching for a principled basis to think intelligently about these issues. And I'm not quite sure what should be done. I mean, about the NHS that Fiona mentioned, yes, of course, the NHS is really under furious pressure. I mean, partly that's probably to do with funding. And partly it's because of the backlog of uh, medical conditions that weren't attended to when COVID was first and foremost on the medical, well, when when that assumed an overwhelming priority. We had very serious conditions that, that weren't dealt with, that weren't treated. Cancer during the pandemic, and perhaps it was thought that COVID had to be prioritised because it, it constituted such a an explosive risk to millions of people. On the other hand, I can't help thinking that there was a that something happened to our sense of priorities where we became just so obsessed with COVID and with the management of COVID that other things that are objectively scarier because they didn't affect the same number of people in ways that could be linked as pandemics are linked they just took on a kind of secondary significance and i think that was a mistake and i thought that at the time yes can i just just comment on that i agree with that the people i mean i think just pragmatically the the reason and a good reason for concentrating on covid for a limited time was that the NHS was going to be overwhelmed by the sheer number of cases of this. Uh, and that seemed to be a good reason for having the, the restrictions, I think. But when it comes to the question of um, having a bunch, a large number of deaths bunched together in a short period of time versus the same number of deaths or more, but over a longer period of time, as Gerald um, suggests, I think there was an irrational bias towards the, the near, the near present than towards the uh, long distance. And I think it this didn't come up. I mean, this came up particularly when people, if you ask people who are very keen on lockdown, well, how long should this go on for, given that we don't yet know when it's going to be a vaccine? And we didn't know that in the early stages. That's really crucial. Well, would you, what about five years? Um, how about 10 years of these lockdowns when we haven't got a vaccine? Eventually, people say, well, no, that's a bit long. And then the answer would be, okay, so imagine you got to the end of five years of all these severe restrictions and there's still no vaccine. Wouldn't you then think, ah, we should have done something different much earlier on. We shouldn't have had all these lockdowns. 
that's what troubled me and got me into some arguments about it. But it, it is uh, it is just difficult. I mean, as I say, I still wear it on the underground. I might stop soon. Most people don't. I often do in supermarkets, so less. I don't know how um, how these values are to be ordered. Um, I tried very hard and got into lots of arguments with people who seem to know better. Um, we're dealing with a number of a plurality of very important values and no metric to solve them. That's a problem with ethical pluralism generally, uh, which is a theory I tend to accept, I think. But uh, yeah, it's difficult. Okay, thanks all of you. Well, um, no firm conclusions, but I don't think anyone can give us firm conclusions on this. Perhaps that's actually what living with COVID is, just trying to use judgment as best we can in yeah, the, yeah, yeah, situations. Yeah. Um, listen, uh, perhaps we'll, we'll stop uh, there, as I say. Um, thanks very much to all three of you. Thanks, Gerald, Fiona, Piers, for coming on and talking uh, with us today about all these topics. Um, and thanks to you for listening and all being well. Uh, we'll be with you soon for another Philosophy Takes on the News. Mm-hmm.